we have just started our series in 1 Timothy. That's where we find ourselves this evening, still in chapter 1. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11, the Word of God reads this way. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated and may God bless the reading and preaching of, of this word. Um, I believe, um, forgive me if I'm my socio-political ignorance, but I believe today Iran does have nuclear weapons. They've had a nuclear program for a long time, but there was a day when they did not yet have nuclear weapons, but they had a program, they were trying to develop them, and a lot of Western nations like ours did not want for them to do that, but we couldn't just do an open act of war, so we had to figure out how are we going to try to undermine this. There's a fascinating documentary on Showtime called Zero Days that if you've not seen it, I would recommend that you watch it. It's just a great documentary. It's well worth your time. It's the true story of a cyber attack that the United States and the Israeli government partnered together to enact against Iran in the early 2010s. And neither country will admit their involvement to this day, but they, it was certainly those two nations partnering together to do this. And uh, they carried out, they, they created a computer virus called Stuxnet. Maybe you've heard of, of Stuxnet, but they created this virus and it was, it's a worm, it's, it was used to infiltrate their nuclear facilities, and the way that they would do this is they would, they would put the virus on a, like a thumb drive and have someone drop it in the parking lot of their nuclear facility, and then some dingus would come along and be like, oh, a free thumb drive, cool. And, and I wonder what's on it, and they would pick it up and put it, put it in their computer, and as soon as they did that, the worm would silently and secretly infiltrate the whole system, and that's how they did that. And then, you know, we would know that we were in, so to speak. And what it secretly gave the U.S. access to Iranian computers, and they would covertly cause little problems to their system, like they would make their centrifuges spin just a little bit too quickly so that they would melt down and cost them millions of dollars and totally for a long time derail their capability of making uh, uranium, which is what they use in nuclear weapons. So it took Iran a long time to figure out that they were actually the, t the target of a sophisticated cyber attack. And as that came out, this operation has been highly controversial. It's called Operation Olympic Games. You read about it on Wikipedia. Because it poses some age-old questions about the rules of war. If the U.S., and this is why we haven't admitted that we did it, but if the U.S. is willing to engage in such an attack, then suddenly that's on the table. There, there can be recipro reciprocity in kind, because if we do this to another nation, why couldn't another nation do this to us? And it would be a truly horrifying thing if a foreign government, one of our enemies or adversaries, like Iran or Russia or China, got a hold of our nuclear facilities or our water supply or, or power or something like that and could just shut it down 
as a cyber attack, it's kind of like opening Pandora's box. A very powerful, very effective tool in the wrong hands can do massive amounts of damage. I share this because in our text today, Paul says something similar about the law of God, the word of God, the Bible, specifically God's law. The law of God is powerful and effective. It's a powerful and effective tool that can do great good. But when it is misused, when it is abused, it is also capable of massive harm. So we must love the law of God, but we've also got to understand how to handle it carefully and properly. So three things from our text today that I want to look at on this is the power of the law, the, uh, the promise of the law, and finally, the purpose of the law. So first, the power of the law. So we see here in this, in this chapter, we looked at last week, there were false teachers that were in Ephesus that Timothy was dealing with. They were people even within the church that were rising within the church. They were using the law to make their points. In Ephesus, the false teachers that were arising were teaching from the law. In verses 6 and 7, we read, Certain persons, which this is right before our text that we read tonight, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Then he says this, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul says that these false teachers are using the law, they're using the Old Testament scriptures, but they don't know how to handle them. And they're abusing them and they're doing great harm. So it is possible to abuse the Bible and to hurt people with it. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've been on the short end of that stick. It's a powerful, powerful tool that we must handle with great care. What the law is able to do, Paul says in verses 8 through 9, he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, if one uses it like it's supposed to be used. Then he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. So here he says, the law is good, it's important, it's, it's beautiful, we should study it, we should teach it, if we know how to use it lawfully, if we handle it correctly, and how do we do that? Well, he says, only by understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the sinners, unholy, profane. So Paul is saying this, that the law, however good it is, does not have the power to make us good. The law is good, but it does not have the power to make us good. The power of the law is not to make us good, but to expose that we are bad, to expose that we have issues. That's the great power of the law. One way to think of it is like this. Many of you have had something like a skin allergy test, or if not, maybe your kids have recently had one, or if you're a nurse, maybe you've recently helped administer something like that. It's a test where a, a medical practitioner will expose your skin to various common allergens like penicillin or foods or plants, bee venom, and put little spots on your skin and wait to see if you have an allergic reaction to any of those things. And the purpose of that is to reveal you have an allergy to this and you should avoid this. The Bible teaches that underneath all of our, um, un underneath the veneer of our lives, we have a sin problem 
but it's more extensive than the fact that we slip up and break God's law from time to time. It goes deeper than that. All of us have a serious allergy to God. In other words, we, we want to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. And we, do, we don't want for anyone else to determine that and impose that upon us. We want to determine that for ourselves. In Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the word for knowledge there, when God says, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge, that word really means determination or discernment. It is the tree of determining good and evil, or the tree of discerning good and evil, the ability to discern or determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And God told Adam and Eve that all of creation was open to them. They could have it all. This alone, God claimed exclusive rights to the ability to determine what is good and what is evil. All sin is rooted in the idea that I will determine for myself what is good and evil, and I, won't, I will not submit to anyone else. I, I will not submit to anyone else's conception of that. So the law, God gives the law, not to make us better. It cannot do that, but to reveal this, this monster that's within us that has this allergy to there being a God who would have a will that's different than ours. Paul says in Romans 7, 7 through 9, we have this on a slide, he says, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. I would not have known that this thing was living inside of me. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead or dormant. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came sin suddenly exposes, it, exposes itself, came alive, and I died. So what's the point there for us? There's many ways to apply this, but here's just one application that I would make from this. I think it's important for us to understand. Is that because the law is powerful, its power is to expose sin, but it d does not have the power to make us good, demanding obedience from those who are under our authority is very often counterproductive. Demanding obedience just does not produce obedience. It cannot. I'm speaking here to those among us who have some degree of power and authority. Parents who have authority over their kids, husbands in their homes, leaders in the church, people who have authority in the workplace, who have some degree of responsibility, who have people that they're caring for. In order to gain control of situations, in order to influence people's behavior, our children's behavior, we often resort to laying down the law. We often resort to saying, this is what I demand you to be, this is what the Bible says you should be, and if you don't comply, there's going to be consequences. And here's that. Sometimes I feel like that's the only tool in my tool belt as a parent. I don't know if you can relate to that. When we do that, it's not that we're incorrect. Paul says the law is good, we're just not using it effectively. We're, not, we're mishandling it, and in fact, we're often harming relationships when we do that, and we're often getting the exact opposite result of what we want. And I'll just give you an example. Years ago, I was counseling a husband who was in some deep marital strife. He and his spouse, there was a number of issues going on, but he and his spouse had not been physically intimate 
for a long time, and that was deeply painful for him. And he accused her of being withholding, intentionally withholding. And he was sticking to his 1 Corinthians 7 guns and laying down the law and saying, God commands that we not withhold from one another. And he was demanding that his wife be obedient to that. And that was his strategy. Now, this man wasn't wrong. God does command that we not withhold from our spouses. We, we not do that. But I had to sit him down and ask him, I said, bro, is your strategy working? Like, is that demanding obedience? How's that going for you? Are, you? are you getting good results? And of course the answer is no. And why? Because the law only has the power to show us that there's a problem. It has no power to fix that problem. That's the power of the law. But we also have the promise of the law. That's our second point. The law is good. The law does not have the power to make us good, but the law is good. It's precious and it's valuable. Paul says in verse 8, the law is good. And he also says in Romans seven twelve, he says, so the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Sound doctrine, Paul talks about the law in verses 9 through 10. He says, He's, he's going on and on about the law, and he says, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else, he's just going through the list. Here, Paul is basically going through the Ten Commandments and pointing out many different parts of the law, many ways that God's law is broken, and he says that all, all of those things are contrary to sound doctrine. Men in our officer training will, will know this because we studied this together recently. But that Greek word for sound doctrine really means healthy doctrine. And it's actually a word used to describe the hull of a ship that's in good repair, that's intact, that's watertight, that's not damaged, it's not leaking, it's not taking on water. The promise of the law is this, that if we do live according to God's law, our lives will be more intact. Our lives will be more watertight. Our relationships will be healthy, good, joyful. Our finances will be healthy, um, even abundant. Our physical bodies will be more healthy. Our emotional lives will be more stable and healthy. And we, we will enjoy security and peace and hope, all, all those good things. Now that's not absolute, and the Bible recognizes that because we live in a fallen world full of suffering and it's not like a formula like obey God and, and things work out. Uh, Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He never sinned and he suffered more than anyone. Uh, he, he was born in poverty. He was betrayed by his friends. He suffered frustration and hunger. So this, this is not an absolute thing. But generally speaking, God's law, when it is obeyed, when we submit ourselves to it, brings health and flourishing. And who doesn't want that? Psalm 32, 12 and 14 says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days? That's all of us. We want more life. We want good days that he may see good. We want to see good. We want to enjoy life. He says, turn away from evil and do good. It's the law of God that brings us to that place. But we have a problem here with that. All of us, each of us, live our lives according to some kind of law. All of us have some kind of law that we live according to. Some set of values that's guiding us, telling us what's right and wrong. And we can all, all of us can look at the Bible and find some things that we agree with. 
even if you're not a believer, even if you're not sure what, what you think about the Bible, all of us can look at some part of it and say, I do like that part. Maybe some of us have experienced greed and we see Jesus' compassion for the downtrodden and we say, I like that. Some of us have experienced the pain of being betrayed. So we can agree, man, ye shall not commit adultery. Like, amen, I agree with that. that was, that's painful. Maybe some of us have experienced the pain of being taken advantage of and treated unfairly. So we, can, we look at the scriptures and say, I agree, ye shall not steal. Yes, that's a, I can abide by that. But we also, each of us, even the most devout among us, can look at the Bible and say, I don't know, though, about this part. I don't know that I'm ready to submit myself to all of it. I don't know that I agree with everything that it says. And of course, I'm only going to submit to something if I agree with it, right? If I, if I can understand it. So we see, the, the problem there is that we begin to see the law of God as more of a straitjacket. It's something that is imposed on us from outside. We don't choose it for ourselves. It's restricting us and it's really robbing us of of the fullest life that we could live. That perspective on the Bible belongs to the dark passenger that lives within us that we call our sinful nature. It is a pernicious lie of the devil and it could not be further from the truth. God's law is nothing of the sort. There's a street in OTR just down the hill from here called Liberty Street and it's a very old street in Cincinnati It's been around almost as long as the city itself. Do you know where it got its name? I've heard two stories of where it got its name from, and they're both illustrative. One story, this is actually probably the true story, is that back before Prohibition, drinking, gambling, other seedier forms of nightlife were not legal in the city limits of Cincinnati, but Liberty Street marked the end of city limits, and the northern liberties were beyond liberty, So there were there then casinos and bars and nightclubs, all of that kind of thing. And Liberty Street is where you could go to escape the confines of the law and do what you wanted to do. That's the definition of liberty, the ability to do what we want. Is that what it means to be free? That's one conception. The other story, it presents a totally different definition The other story says that back in the times of slavery, there was a certain geographical point in Cincinnati where if an escaped slave could cross, they would not be apprehended and sent back to where they escaped from. And it came to be known as Liberty Street because that's where liberty could be achieved. But that's a totally different kind of liberty. It's not liberty to do whatever it is we want. It's liberty from an oppressor. Is it freedom to or freedom from? We think about liberty and freedom almost exclusively in the sense of being able to follow our desires, to be our true selves, whatever it is that that we feel that we want to, to have the ability to pursue that and follow that. And anything that restricts that is bad, and that is freedom, to be able to run full throttle. But the problem with this, I think, is that our desires often lead us astray. What I mean by that is that we follow them, but they lead us to places that we don't really want to be, that we never thought that we would go, and our desires are, are deceptive. They, we follow them, but they take us to this place where we're not really, it's not really what we wanted after all. We're not really happy with where we've landed. 
In this case, the Bible would be a restriction on our liberty, but instead we should think of liberty as escaping from oppression and from dysfunctional ways of life, ways of life that are just that are not working, that are not producing results. And the Bible, by, by laying out the way that we should go, is showing us the way to freedom. As James says in James 1.25, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's the promise of the law. Finally, we also see the purpose of the law. Paul says, is talking about teaching the law according to the gospel. And he says, using the law well means that we understand what it is and what it isn't able to do, but it also means that we use it according to the gospel. Look again at at verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Then jumping down to verse 11, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he says, to use it lawfully, we've got to do it in accordance with the gospel. Next week, we're going to look more closely at the, at the next verses, but we'll, we'll just touch on them here. As soon as Paul says this, he starts talking about the gospel, and he says in verse 13, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. And then in verse 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the, for, am the foremost. So the purpose of the law, the power of the law is to expose sin. But the purpose of the law is to show us that we need saving and to make us desirous of a savior, make us hungry for a savior. A number of years ago, some friends of mine were hiking in Red River Gorge during uh, the winter months. It was maybe during this time of year. It was icy out and they were on the edge of a cliff face. And one friend walked out to the edge with his phone to snap a picture of a beautiful view. And then he turned around to walk back to the path. And before he could get back, he slipped. And there was nothing to hold on to. And he began to slide slowly on the ice toward the edge of the cliff. And my other friend is watching him this whole time, unable really to do anything to help. And he watched him sliding toward the edge and then watched him disappear as he went over the edge. And he thought, that boy is dead. He's not dead. You can laugh at that. Um, but watched him fall over the edge. Um, he fell into a, a crevice. He broke several bones, including both of his legs. And he's fine today, actually. He's made a full recovery. But he survived. And it was around that time that he realized that he needed saving that there was absolutely nothing that he or his other friend could do at that point to get out of that mess. They needed a professional crew to come and rescue them. There's a difference, big difference, between slipping up, messing up occasionally, and needing rescue, needing saving. All of us recognize that we're not perfect. We all admit, yeah, I slip up from time to time. I, I, do, I, I, I violate my own conscience. I do things I, I know I shouldn't do. And and we're going to have to say, I'm sorry, a few times as we go throughout life. But the purpose of the law of God is to show us not just that we slip up, but that we need to be rescued from a deep crevice of selfishness 
that we've fallen into and we can't climb out of. And unless there is someone capable who is able to save, then we are going to bring great ruin and pain to our lives and to those whom we love. Jesus Christ did not come into the world, Paul says, to coach people with untapped potential. He's not, he's not a coach. Uh, he didn't come to lend a hand to people who just need a little leg up. He didn't come to improve people who are already pretty good, already fairly righteous. Paul says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he did that by coming as a man and being born under the law, living in perfect obedience to the law of God, and receiving in his spirit and in his body the consequences of sin on behalf of sinners. Do you understand the disastrous consequences of sin? How much pain it will bring to you and to the people that you love? Do you understand how deeply sin resides within our own hearts? Do you understand your need to be rescued from that? Jesus can save you. He can change you. He can forgive you. One of my favorite country songs is called Keep a Close Eye on Me, and it has a line that goes like this. It says, Let me know where I come from. Let me leave more than I take. Let me sow the seeds that I hope to reap. O oh Lord, keep a close eye on me. Do you, I, that's a prayer I often pray. Lord, I know my propensity to ruin my life is great. Keep a close eye on me. I love that because in our arrogance, we forget where we come from. We're, we forget that we're creatures of dust. We're made of dust. We're, we're weak. God did not carve you out of a diamond. He made us from the dust. We're prone to failure. We often take more from others than we give. We sow seeds that feel good in the moment, but later reap horrible consequences. Who will save us from this body of death? O oh Lord, keep a close eye on us. To that end, let us pray.